Hello, good evening, and welcome to the third of the New Arabs webinar series. We're very lucky to have two exceptional speakers with us today to look at one of the GCC's most pressing and disturbing events since its inception, the blockade of Qatar. Um, just a quick word uh, for those of you new to the New Arab. We were established six years ago um, by Professor Azmi Bishara, one of the Arab world's leading intellectuals and uh, liberal Democrats, um, with the aim of becoming um, the most professional um, outlet covering the region um, in, in the most objective uh, manner uh, possible. Um, we're obviously always open to suggestions, criticisms, contributions from everyone. Um, and if you um, visit our website, which is currently being um, revamped and will be uh, launched soon, uh, relaunched, um, it's newarab.co.uk. Um, with us today is uh, Professor Christian Coates Ulrichson, who is a fellow for the Middle East at Rice's University, Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, as well as an associate fellows, fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. He's the author of seven books, including five on the Gulf, the most recent being Qatar and the Gulf Crisis, published by Hearst in February 2020. Reem al-Harami, is a researcher and columnist. She was a fellow at Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University in New York. She's published articles in both Arabic and English in several international newspapers and websites. Her interests are focused on issues such as media and social media, counterterrorism, feminism, and women's issues, and international and US politics. Of course, it goes without saying that both of them have a significant social media presence and are very uh, Twitter uh, active. Um, myself being a keen follower of them both, they're both very, very useful to follow indeed. Um, a quick background as well to those of you who have joined um, uh, this uh, the, uh, webinar, I might not um, have a fuller picture about the uh, Qatar blockade. Of course, um, our guests will be talking more about this as well. Um, the blockade um, happened under an interesting pretext of posts which were put on the uh, Qatar news agency by hackers. Um, after 13 days of uh, a huge media onslaught by the countries involved, um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and Egypt, um, uh, on the 5th of June, 2017, all borders between Saudi Arabia, um, land, air, sea, and as well land, air, sea with, um, I mean, there's no land uh, borders with the other countries, but the air and sea borders as well were blocked to them by um, Bahrain and the UAE as well. And a list of demands, not uh, dissimilar to the uh, Austro-Hungarian ultimatum were given. Uh, the demands included some very um, controversial, let's call them for now, um, demands, many of them which were um, obviously touched um, uh, the, were directly contravening um, to the national sovereignty of, of, of Qatar as a uh, sovereign state. Um, some were also questionable because um, they asked to, for Qatar to hand over people that were either dead or actually lived in the blockading countries. Um, and many other things that I think we will um, touch on. Within the webinar, I hope that we will go, we will leave the webinar with a greater understanding as well as to why the um, blockade on Qatar is actually um, important and should concern the international community, the impact 
that this whole blockade has had on the freedom of speech and freedom of expression in the region, in the GCC, and possibly even the, the wider Arab region. State interference, heightened state interference in media to a whole new level uh, um, has possibly um, become the norm, I think, um, within states. And also the idea about how this has kind of like signaled uh, a new wave of what some might describe as a neo-authoritarianism in the region. Uh, far less accountability than before, far more authoritarianism than, than before, and quite possibly the complete destruction of whatever was left of um, the Arab Spring and the hope that a lot of other people had in, 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 in the wider region. Anyway, um, I'd like to begin with um, Reem, if I may. Um, and Reem, maybe you could um, begin by um, giving um, uh, our guests an introduction to the blockade and the impact it had on media and social media, and what were the main issues um, that we can take from, from the first year or two of the blockade. Okay. Um, good evening, and thank you for having me. Uh, so just like to reiterate what you just said, every crisis uh, has a pretext. The pretext for the GCC uh, crisis and the blockade of Qatar was hacking Qatar news agency and attributing comments allegedly made by His Highness Sheikh Hamid bin Hamad al-Thani, which never took place or he never said. So after that, um, and this is something that might sometimes be forgotten to be mentioned in the media, the director general of the Qatar News Agency contacted his counterparts to tell them that the website has been hacked, that those comments were false, uh, and none of them were true. However, he got no response from them, and this is when we started to doubt that there was something going on. The fact that they never responded to his texts and, uh, you know, and never uh, pulled out the comments uh, meant that this is only uh, willingfully, uh, you know, uh, the comments were willingfully put there, and they have known about this whole thing. And then the, the other thing is that the uh, when Sky News Arabia and other Saudi and UAE news outlets rushed to publish the comments uh, without fact-checking them, without having any pottery, you know, um, commentators, uh, if you will, they rushed to bring in uh, commentators from uh, their respective countries and elsewhere to comment on the uh, on the alleged comments made by His Highness, which he never said again, uh, and then you know they had experts you know around the clock basically talking about you know the uh, comments, the false comments, and uh, not a single Qatari voice were on those uh, media outlets. And it's very interesting also when we look at the uh, this crisis that when they uh, initiated the blockade uh, and when other news media was hacked. Um, a Qatari news agency, sorry, was hacked. Uh, they never had any demands. They never had any kind of uh, allegations, if you will. It's only when the U.S. spokesperson, Heather Newworth at the time, said that they were mystified at the actions taken by the blockading countries and that um, they were, uh, they said, the State Department said back then that the more time goes on, the more doubt is raised about the actions taken about the blockading countries. And this is to tell you how irrational their actions were uh, and still to this day. Um, so basically, uh, when the uh, Saudi and Marathi, basically the blockading countries have uh, published such information, false allegations about Qatar, they, they knew you know, uh, that they have taken the green light from unfortunately the leadership there. So. On June 5th, there, there was that blockade. On June 20th, the U.S. State Department made that 
statement that there has been no demand, they don't know what the blockading countries want. And then on June 23rd, only three days after the State Department um, statement, they had the 13 demands, which were, you know, basically uh, nonsense. Uh, you know, they were uh, just, you know, uh, it's, it's just nonsense what they uh, came up with. So ever since then, they have used so many tactics uh, on whether social media or uh, traditional media. One of the very, uh, you know, first thing that they have done is that they push to mobilize uh, tribes against Qatar. So basically, you know how uh, interconnected families and tribes are here in this region. Uh, they uh, tried that uh, to ultimately uh, lead to regime change uh, and Qatar by uh, mobilizing the tribes, um, but it backfired at them because it only so showed loyalty and solidarity and less, you know, allegiance to the leadership here in Qatar. Um, so, and and when we when we talk about mobilizing tribes, it's like we're back to the dark uh, ages era again. It's unfortunate that we've seen you know that blockading countries using such tactic in order to to basically uh, achieve some sort of regime change that they were hoping to have. Um, another thing we need to also focus on is the language, especially the Arabic text and the, and the media. So the language is crucial here when it comes to the GCC crisis and the located cover. Um, you would see often words that I have never seen in any uh, political or diplomatic dispute uh, in anywhere in the world. For example, they have repeatedly called Qatar the uh, prodigal ch child or the disobedient child or son, uh, meaning that Qatar is no longer um, under the Saudi hegemony and they need to come back to the Saudi hegemony. Uh, this is a word that has been repeatedly um, said in Arabic uh, in their uh, located countries' media. Uh, another, you know, uh, alarming thing, and it's used as a, a psychological uh, war uh, tactic, used by the blockading countries is they repeatedly have spoken about starvation and a famine in Qatar. So we all know that the uh, blockade took place during Ramadan, the fasting month of Ramadan, where the consumption of food and water goes up to maybe 200%. And the 90% of the food and other supplies uh, came from the blockading countries. Qatar imported 90% of their needs from these blockading countries. And uh, when when the blockade happened and the um, borders basically was border was closed by land, air, and sea, um, there there was a lot of let's say gloating on social media and elsewhere that Qatar might fall into a famine, that the Qataris might be starving, and there are lots of media individuals from both countries have been circulating photos of empty shelves at Qatari supermarkets and. Um, in grocery stores uh, and commenting, you know, in a way that is honestly very uh, alarming, you know, to, to see that rhetoric and uh, language online. Uh, they were talking all the time about, you know, the starvation and Qatar might uh, need uh, to uh, to import food, but they can't and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So that was one tactic to uh, kind of, of a psychological war, if you will. 
uh, another thing that is very, uh, I think, uh, not spoken about a lot is the continuous vicious attack on women. Basically, any woman who speaks up, any woman who is not in line with the rhetoric of the blockading states, she's under a very vicious attack online. There is lots of uh, defamation, lots of slander, and lots of uh, character assassination. Uh, the the um, the language that they use against women are very sexist, very misogynist, and it continues to this very day um, that women uh, find themselves in a very toxic uh, environment online and elsewhere also uh, on traditional media, but particularly online uh, when they are continuously attacked and continuously uh, slandered just for speaking up, and and you know this kind of uh, of behavior is not spoken about enough, unfortunately, but I think we should emphasize on, you know, the continuous attack uh, and the, uh, on women uh, who speaks up, uh, which is aiming to coerce women and to silence women from continuing to speak up, to, to continue to articulate themselves. So this is a very, um, you know, alarming moment in the Gulf that I have personally have not seen before. You know, uh, we have not seen such thing in the whole Middle East. I think it's a very unique aspect of this GCC crisis as the, unfortunately, the loss of ethics and morals when it comes to a, a political and diplomatic dispute as they claim. Um, so, so again, uh, about the social media, we have seen continuous media campaign against Qatar uh, that is aiming to initiate a military coup, for example, against Qatar. Uh, there are lots of circulated news that are untrue, of course, and obviously about uh, military coup happening in Qatar. Just recently, just you know, less than a month ago, um, they came up with a video that is not taken from Qatar, and they circulated this hashtag on Twitter saying that there is a military coup happening in Qatar, which is untrue and unfounded information. The uh, I think I think one of the most uh, you know noticeable thing in this uh, crisis is there there is this sense of hyper nationalism that. It's like if you attack Qatar more, then you're gonna prove that you're patriotic, that you're gonna prove that you're, uh, you know, you stick to your country, which is something very uh, also alarming in this region. I know there is a sense of nationalism all over the world right now, but the hyper nationalism on, on, on online on social media is something uh, that we should really uh, look at and uh, pay attention to. Um, in fact, you know, uh, when we talk about the social media, it's not only Twitter bots, it's not only random accounts. We have verified accounts for real people, real individuals. Some of them um, have held and continue to hold, uh, you know, titles uh, close to the government. For example, the Dubai former police chief, and uh, who's a lieutenant general, basically, uh, he tweeted, for example, one time, he tweeted, um, within 24 hours, he tweeted 50 more than 50 times against Qatar. Uh, this same guy has tweeted a few days ago uh, about the invasion, uh, like a proposed invasion of Qatar, basically, a proposed Arab invasion, he called it, an Arab invasion of Qatar. I mean, you know, for someone who holds a security and police title to go on and talk about an invasion of another country, and this tweet continues to be on, and, th and this guy continues to tweet the way he tweets, it's really alarming, you know? It, it tells you a lot about the, unfortunately, the leadership of countries where these threats continue 
heaven. The reduced threats continued to uh, take place against not only uh, you know Qatar, but also the people uh, of Qatar, the uh, citizens of Qatar. You know, the irony here, uh, Abdurrahman, is that on June 7th, the UAE public prosecutor, uh, and this is published in a UAE newspaper, uh, so no one can deny this, the UAE uh, public prosecutor criminalized um, anyone sympathizing with Qatar or any any objection to UAE stance on Qatar. And he uh, even said there will be a fine of 500,000 UAE dirhams, that's equivalent of like maybe 1,250 uh, US dollars or uh, and three to 15 years in jail for those who sympathize with Qatar. And this is, you know, this is to tell you, this is on June 7th, this is to tell you that there is a real suppression of opinions and views and freedom of speech. Um, on the contrary though, you know, the government communication office in Qatar here has issued a statement, you know, saying that everyone should stick to uh, morals and ethics when they're using the social media. Everyone should refrain from using abusive language. And this is to tell you the, unfortunately, the, different, the difference of leadership where, you know, people in one country have the green light and the go ahead to attack, you know, women and to slander people and to continue this abusive behavior where another country, you know, discourages from doing this uh, through uh, its institutions. And um, which is something that is really unfortunate and we have not seen in any other, uh, you know, crisis or any other, uh, you know, uh, country, unfortunately. It's, it's something that is new to this region. So luckily, you know, uh, when, when we're talking about Twitter and the abusive, abusive behavior online, luckily there has been a recent action by Twitter. Uh, just last April, Twitter took down about 7,000 Twitter accounts that are linked to UAE, Saudi, and Egypt, um, which is a good start, honestly, to, uh, to curb on the abusive behavior online, but it's not enough. There, there should be uh, more things done to stop this abusive behavior. And I think, you know, this abusive behavior would not stop unless the governments of these countries intervene, the highest person in the leadership intervene to put an end to this, just like how they, you know, intervene to uh, come up with a law to uh, punish and, and criminalize new sympathizing with Qatar, they can also come up with a law to stop this behavior online. And then um, the, the other thing is that, uh, you know, one of the most absurd things that I have seen recently is the uh, latest uh, columns by uh, UAE and Saudi writers who have, uh, you know, said and claimed that Qatar is behind the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, how irrational that is. Like, one of the writers said basically that Qatar is behind the coronavirus pandemic. And the reason for that is they want to damage the uh, 2030 MBS vision and they want to damage the Dubai Expo uh, that's coming up soon. So, I mean, we're talking about the level, the level of irrationality and the level of the kind of rhetoric that is being used and continues to be used. Um, and, and my question, I guess, you know, if this is a diplomatic uh, and, and, you know, political dispute and political crisis, why do they have to bring in all the uh, layers from society? Like, why do they have to bring in 
actors, singers, uh, academics, um, you know, uh, even even Muslim clerics. The Grand Mufti of uh, Saudi, he had an interview a few days after the, a few months rather after the blockade, said that um, the blockade on Qatar has so much good for Qataris. So we have the Grand, even the Grand Mufti is intervening into this. Um, you know, the the problem is that the blockading Hello? countries. Yes. Okay, I'll, okay. I'll have to cut you out. If I'm going to wrap up. Last yeah. sentence, yeah. Um, The blockading country have, have lost credibility, basically, and they really have to work hard on restoring this credibility. Um, okay, thank you very much, Reem. And I'm sure we'll revisit some of these points in a bit. Um, Professor Christian, um, it would be great, um, obviously, to leave you to your own devices, so to speak, to, to talk about the impact this has had on the political landscape in the, in the GCC, given that um, we were used to the intra-GCC um, relations being somewhat benign. If there were issues, you know, they were kind of dealt with in behind closed doors, uh, indirect messages and so on. This has been a full-on blockade. The media has become very aggressive. Political statements from very senior political figures have been very... Um, undiplomatic, let's say, or very straightforward, very harsh sometimes. So um, please go ahead. Well, thank you. I would have thought that Mohammed bin Salman should be thanking coronavirus because it gives him an excuse when Vision 2030 doesn't work out the way he thought it would. I mean, he can now say this is an unanticipated development. And so, I mean, you thought that actually it might work out better for him if it turns out that they don't change the extent that he thinks it will change. Anyway, building on what Rian was saying about the blockade and about some of the, the legacies, I mean, I guess from an outsider's perspective, someone who's not in the Gulf, why is this important? Why is the blockade important? Why should people in the US or in the UK, especially in the US, why should they, why should they care about it? Well, for a start, this is the biggest uh, crack in the region, in the Gulf since 1990, since the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Obviously, we didn't see a, a military escalation in, the, in this uh, 2017 um, crisis, although we, uh, we know from the Emir of Kuwait's comments in the, uh, his White House press conference in July, uh, September 2017, we know that um, there was some sort of escalation being planned. At least he said, thanks God, we stopped military action, but it's certainly the biggest crack in the gulfs for, for 30 years. It's also by, by timing, it was a coincidence of timing, that the blockade happened on the 50th anniversary, 50 years to the day since the 1967 war, since the Israeli um, attack on Egypt, the beginning of the Six-Day War. And the 1967 war really reshaped politics of the Middle East for a generation, and at least on a smaller level in the Middle East, in the sort of sub-regional level of the Gulf, we're seeing how, once again, politics are being reshaped, and it could well be for a, a long period of time. It's been three years now, but um, in uh, 2019, for example, the Saudi ambassador to the United Kingdom, Prince uh, Khalid bin Bandar al-Saud, he was asked at a, a think tank event, he was asked about the, how long it would take uh, the blockade and his response was to draw an analogy with the US and Cuba, which of course has been ongoing now for more than 50 years. So 
certainly you know, we're in this for a longer period of time and I think we've all had to get used to the Gulf rift as the new normal and to some extent to how to figure it out, work arounds around it. It's also important because it's an international crisis of the alternative facts era. And I think we all remember those first six months of 2017 when Donald Trump came to office, uh, even the very first weekend when there was the bigger uh, controversy about the size of the crowd at his inauguration in Washington, D.C. And his, um, his advisor, Kellyanne Conway, coined the term alternative facts, to, uh, which really then became a sort of kind of a synonym for the sort of very different narratives that people now seem to inhabit. And of course, the Qatar crisis began with alternative facts. It began with a hack, as, uh, as Remus said, and it began with, with a sort of fake news, a fake news story. This is an international crisis manifestation of that fake news, alternative facts um, issue. But it's also one from an international point of view that once you've let the, the sort of cat out of the bag, you've opened a Pandora's box that cannot be shut again. It's now three years in. And although Donald Trump initially seemed to support the blockade, he then changed his position, but he can't get the blockade to finish. He, he now realizes that he has much less ability to end it, even though at the beginning in 2017, it was perhaps the uh, implicit assumption in, in, in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi that he might support it, that uh, arguably sort of drove the desire to take action when they did. It was also right after Trump had gone to, to Riyadh from his first overseas visit as, as president. So it's much, much harder to end this than perhaps it was to, to begin. So it's important in that respect. It's also important because it was a crack in the US-led uh, kind of regional hegemony. Uh, the US has, for the last 30 years, had extremely close political and security relationships with all six Gulf Cooperation Council states, it still does. But now there's a huge gaping hole within that network of partnerships. And in 2017, there was a hope, I think, from Saudis and the Emiratis that Trump would take sides. But this isn't a US, uh, this isn't like a Saudi Arabia versus Iran issue, where for the US there's one good side and one bad side. From a US perspective, these are all partners, and any assumption that they would take sides was uh, at least short lived. At the same time, the fact that Trump did initially tweet on the 6th of June, three tweets in support of the uh, blockade, saying that Qatar was a a thunder of terrorism at the highest level, and it was good to see his uh, talk in Riyadh paying off with the with the local partners. You know that was a, that caused shockwaves. I mean that caused shockwaves in Qatar, but I would argue it probably caused shockwaves in Kuwait, in Oman, and even if they thought about it in Bahrain and the UAE as well. For for thirty years, the US had been seen as the external guarantor of regional security of these countries' stability. You know, the lesson was of Kuwait in 1990. If uh, something happened, it would be the US that would step in, either to stop it from escalating or then stepping in to, to fix whatever had happened. And so for the first time since 1990, that kind of assumption was tested. The assumption that the US might always be at our support, that something might happen, the US might change sides. Now, obviously, the Qataris then worked very rigorously and successfully to make sure that the whole of US government did not join the White House and initially choosing to take sides. 
and that even the White House subsequently kind of rebalanced its approach. But the, the shockwave was still there. The fact that what might happen if you open in a position where you, your kind of most ex important external partner might not be there for you. And I would argue that for Qatar, that moment was in 2017. For the Saudis and for the Emiratis, I think I would argue they had a similar moment in 2019, in September, when we had the attack on Abqaiq and Quraysh in Saudi Arabia, the missile and drone attack, which took out half of Saudi Arabia's oil production, and the Trump administration did nothing. And I would argue that a lot of de-escalation vis-a-vis Iran, and to some extent in Yemen, since September 2019 has been because the Saudis and Emiratis also, for them, realized that actually there might not be as close a relationship that they could trust with the U.S. government, this, at least this White House, that they had thought. So for Qatar, that moment was 2017. The Saudis and Emiratis, that time's in 2019. Now, what we've seen over the past, I guess, eight months since September, and especially the past four months since January, February, with coronavirus, I think we've seen how stuck this crisis is, how stuck the blockade is. In 2019, in September, the attack on Saudi should have shown, it should have woken people up in the Gulf to the real nature of the threat that they face. Now, whatever your disagreement with Qatar, the threat that Saudi Arabia faces physically is not from Doha, it's from Iran or it's from groups linked to Iran, and that was shown. And the Qataris took part in a chief of staff's meeting. Soon afterwards, they agreed to a communique that you know, reaffirmed the pledge of collective security and attack on one, and the GCC's an attack on all. They did all the right things. And there seemed to be progress in at least a dialogue between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. But then, of course, that lost steam. That eventually lost steam in December and kind of ground to a halt in January 2020. And it seems that a lot of the momentum from the Saudi side Came to, a, came to a halt in late November and December after Mohammed bin Salman spent four days in Abu Dhabi with Mohammed bin Zayed. So it seems that if you know, the Qataris had hoped they could kind of split the blockade by peeling Saudi Arabia away, it seems that MBS and MBZ still have a close enough relationship that over Qatar they will not split. They may split over Yemen where they do support very different sides. But it seems that over Qatar, they will, at least for the moment, sort of be on the same page. But um, even if a threat, a common threat they saw in September, even that has not been able to end the blockade. And I'll just end by saying that even since March, a common challenge posed by the pandemic, which doesn't respect geopolitical boundaries, even in that face of the pandemic, that hasn't brought the crisis to an end either. You know, we've seen uh, tit for tat, we've seen the Bahrainis picking a fight with Qatar on Twitter, on the Qataris trying to repatriate uh, Bahraini citizens. We've seen, as Reem has said, these uh, allegations that the Qataris are you know, behind the corona. We've seen this continual, an ink, just continuing as before, like a business as usual. Even this hasn't been able to end it. And so if not this, then what? And I'll just finally say that if Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi Mohammed bin Zayed is willing to pick up the telephone and speak to Bashar al-Assad in Syria about COVID-19 and to talk about the common challenge that they both face. You know, if he's willing to do that with the Syrian president after everything that's happened in Syria, but he's not willing to do that with Qatar, then I think we really are stuck 
And I think people in the US, in the UK, and people outside have to realize this is probably going to take a long time to eventually resolve. So with that, I'll pass it back to you. Well, thank you very much. That that was great. And um, I think um, it was particularly pertinent, of course, the point about um, him talking to Bashar al-Assad. Of course, a lot of um, direct uh, state media outlets and indirectly controlled state media outlets from the blockading countries have now um, begun describing uh, Qatar as farther away from them than the state of Israel, for example, which was obviously the the, the country which they would never want to admit publicly to have any relationships with and so on. Um, so maybe that will go some way to explain the, the, the current public animosity. We've got a great question from one of our audience um, who is basically saying that the GCC was already weakened as a regional organization before the Qatar blockade. If, as Dr. Alrichson suggests, the standoff is going to last for many years, is the GCC effectively dead? And I would also like to add to that, uh, Professor. Um, okay, let's assume that it will um, continue for many years. Um, how do you see the landscape? Now, obviously, that one GCC country has left OPEC, Qatar, obviously, and then um, the GCC be Kuwait uh, or Oman, um, more likely. Um, will alternative uh, regional groupings happen? Something solidifying even more the relationship between some of these countries or what? Um, well, I think as long as the Emir of Kuwait shakes the bones, initiatives in 2017 that kept the GCC together functioning at a level, but at least at a technocratic level. And you know, he also pushed very hard to have a summit that year in Kuwait. And uh, of course, the summit then broke down in acrimony after, I think, one session in the morning. It showed the depth of the crisis. But I think as long as the Emir of Kuwait is still with us, for a minister at the time, and he places great importance Gulf is the oldest ruler. I think there's enough deference, even still in Abu Dhabi, in reality. Continue to meet in technocratic committees. I don't think it will regain its importance as a collective or the same way that it did. And again, partly because when you talked about regional groupings, what might emerge? Well, to some extent, we've already had it. We had the Saudi Emirati Coordination Council, which was announced at the end of 2017. It's been meeting twice a year since 2018. And, and this, is, to some extent, is the new kind of center of Gulf politics running from Riyadh to Abu Dhabi. It's, 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 arguably, it's, it's as exclusionary as the GCC was inclusionary. You know, it doesn't even include Bahrain, which is a, one of the three Gulf states which are part of the blockade. So, I mean, we've already had a new regional alignment. And so whether or not the GCC then just continues, um, perhaps less visible in, than before, it probably will. I mean, I think we've seen in the past in the region, things don't necessarily uh, get wound up. You know, they just become more marginal. And I think maybe that might happen once, uh, once the of Kuwait passes away. I mean, Oman also, I think, would be independent in policy. But of course, Oman, as we know, has a lot of financial difficulties. 
and could at some point need Gulf support from their neighbors. I think we saw a story today from Bloomberg that said that might happen. So, I mean, Oman, I think it's in a very difficult position, but certainly the QAD issue could be important too. I would like to um, um, go to Reem, if I may, um, as well. All of our audiences from media to politics and back, back and forth, actually, who are specialists in these um, um, relations within families that share, um, obviously, citizenship, you know, from one country to another, or, or um, the popular culture that has been hijacked by this. So, for example, there was the um, uh, Doha song where kids' voices were singing quite sinister lyrics about, um, uh, you know, Qatar and uh, its emir and um, his family um, and um, kind of like um, uh, conspiracy theories about being controlled by Iran and so on. There was obviously the campaign to dig a huge trench between Qatar and Saudi Arabia to divide it and so on. So these are things that I think might stay in, or will they stay in the memory of people? Will this cause issues? Have they caused issues within families or within in society as a whole? Um, could you give us some insight into this, Reem? Yes, um, unfortunately, the uh, GCC crisis and the Bukit of Qatar has caused a great damage to the social fabric uh, within the GCC and the interconnected families uh, in the GCC. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, people and families were separated as a result of this uh, blockade right away. Uh, people can no longer visit their families and it's hard to uh, visit one another's families. And um, I don't know, honestly, if people can uh, let go of the uh, damage that has done has been done to their families as a result of this blockade. Um, the, the thing is, you know, uh, when we look at the GCC crisis and say we compare it to another, you know, uh, diplomatic crisis, I have never seen anything, you know, in the recent history between any two countries who have, you know, disputes or, you know, even a war where they stop, you know, the citizens of countries visiting each other, which is basically what has happened from the blockading countries. Um, you know, they, uh, they separated families, they, uh, they kicked out uh, Qataris uh, when they were in Mecca. Uh, they kicked out students who were studying in the universities over there. So there are sets of uh, actions that, that they have taken against people and they have harmed, you know, you know, for most, uh, the most important thing, they have harmed families and the social fabric in the society. Uh, I don't know if people will let go of this easily. Uh, it's, it's hard, but then, you know, the, uh, the unity and the family ties between the Gulf countries, uh, the, 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 the citizens of the Gulf countries are very strong, despite of the uh, politics, unfortunately, of the blockading countries. Uh, all of a sudden, we've, we've, we've we, I mean, the, the, I just realized we've got far more questions than we might possibly have time. I know Dr. Uh, Christian has to rush off at seven on the dot to another webinar, in fact. Um, so what, what I'll do is I'll try and merge some of these questions. Uh, Professor, um, as Qatar has had to establish alternative suppliers, notably Turkey and Iran, does this represent a permanent change in economic relations in the region? As well, 
um, um, from uh, um, that that was from a Stephen Bell and from Nur Al Manai. There have been recent comments about a resolution to the crisis. What has been halting this resolution? So, as you know, there was a number of cases. In fact, at one point there was a call, obviously, between uh, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, and that was the whole thing was, you know. Um, down the pan, so to speak. So um, could you address those two very quickly so that we can squeeze in a few more questions as well? Yeah, sure. Well, in terms of restructuring trade routes, I mean, the Qataris have done, I mean, they put in place an infrastructure which is going to help and make, why would they need to go back to what they had in the past? I mean, you know, the I think the importance of Hamad ports, for example, of allowing Qatar to receive direct ocean-going cargo ships without having to go through Jebel Ali in Dubai was enormous. I think that allowed Qatar to bypass the UAE and deal directly with, with, with suppliers. And I would go as far as argue that had the blockade happened in 2014, when there was a previous row between the same countries and Doha, you know, had that happened then, when 85% of Qatar's uh, sea-bound uh, cargo had to go to Jabladi first, you know, the Qataris would have been in real difficulty very quickly. So, I mean, a lot of the infrastructure development and the logistics that they put in place are not just, I mean, the response to the blockade, but they're also laying the foundation for you know, long-term restructuring, which if it makes more sense, then I think they'll continue with that. Uh, and just in terms of the ending of the, or the rumors about the ending of the blockade, I mean, we saw, I think, a, a series of messages at the end of May, beginning of June, between uh, Oman and Kuwait and Qatar, and then the Emir of Kuwait uh, sending a letter to uh, the Saudi king as well. It didn't produce a result. We had the anniversary on the 5th of June. And I think what was actually also quite interesting was that uh, the UAE was nothing, nowhere to be mentioned. I mean, these were messages involving the Saudis, it seemed, not the Emiratis. And I think the problem is that just as the crisis seems to have begun in Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, it will only end when. Abu Dhabi decides it's ready to, to climb down, and I just don't see them being at that point, either now or anytime, anytime soon. So I think that's, as long as they're not involved in diplomacy, I just don't think they have a real chance of seeing a result. Sorry, I'm getting used to the mute button. For Reem and uh, yourself um, there on, I'm also, again, um, merging a few questions here, but we're looking at, Quite, um, a blockade where the blockading countries have really dug themselves in deep and um, it looks like it's going to be uh, a rather significant climb down of some sort if some rapprochement is going to happen. So how do you see um, a possible way out of this? Who could be the credit, possible credible brokers? What might be the things that each side will have to do possibly without losing face in front of their own people. I mean, you know, some serious um, uh, uh, actions have been taken by countries imprisoning hundreds and hundreds of people who were supposedly sympathetic to Qatar, who tweeted, things like this. A lot of things have happened. So, Reem, maybe you could um, possibly give us your um, vision of that. I mean, um, bear in mind as well, again, as one of the questioners have said, is that whilst this blockade has happened, there has been a couple of times, and Professor Christian mentioned this, where uh, the Qatari military chiefs, for example, have taken part in a number of events as well, even whilst the blockade has happened. Um, in the military practice, I think, once or twice. So um, you, you've got this very strange situation. 
there's a very high intentions. What are your positive All right, so uh, Qatar has been always committed to the Kuwaiti initiative, and uh, Kuwait has been, you know, initiating um, and hosting certain talks uh, to resolve this issue. Uh, unfortunately, the blockading countries have not, you know, had any exit strategy uh, out of this. Now, Qatar is open for dialogue. Qatar has been all, always said that they're open for dialogue as long as this does not touch the sovereignty and the independence of the Qatari foreign policy. Uh, Qatar welcomed dialogue several times from the, the early days of the blockade. Uh, Qatar said repeatedly that uh, we want to have a dialogue, we're open for a dialogue, but you know there was unfortunately no response from the other side. Another thing is that Qatar is very committed, very committed to the unity of the GCC, right? That, that's why His Highness Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, uh, right after the uh, uh, the uh, blockade started um, on December of 2017. He went uh, personally to Kuwait to, uh, you know, to participate in the GCC summit in December 2017. Uh, Qatar has been committed uh, to all of the GCC meetings. Qatar participated in the ministerial meetings on so many levels. Uh, Qatar was on February, despite the fact that um, Saudi Arabia did not grant the, her Excellency the Minister of Health. Um, an entry permit to Saudi Arabia to enter, to attend the, um, the coronavirus summit, uh, the GCC, sorry, the GCC summit on the coronavirus. At first, you know, they did not uh, grant her entry um, for, to attend the summit, but then Qatar was committed also to attend the summit, just like, you know, any other, um, you know, GCC meetings. So the commitment uh, from Qatar has been always, you know, proven. However, unfortunately, the other uh, locating countries have not been as committed to the unity uh, of the GCC countries. They have not been as committed to the uh, meeting. And I don't think they're serious about any sort of, um, you know, uh, resolution of this because, you know, like we said all the time, you know, every time we, uh, we move one step ahead, we get pulled back, you know, uh, because of, you know, the uh, collapse of the talks, you know, like the recent talks between Qatar uh, and Saudi, where Saudi has changed their mind apparently for, for unknown reason. Um, a media campaign again against Qatar. So, like I said earlier, Qatar has been always committed to the GCC and the unity of the GCC, and it has proven um, on so many times, on so many occasions. Uh, what we are out to see is the uh, commitment for the, from the blockading countries if they're serious about mending this uh, crisis. Yeah, I think from a, looking at it from a US perspective, I think Donald Trump had it the wrong way around. I mean, Donald Trump in spring 2018 had this plan to have separate meetings at the White House with Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed, and then with uh, Sheikh Tamim, and uh, then have a sort of big grand summit at Camp David. But I mean, that's not going to be how the crisis is resolved because it would involve losing face. It would involve leaders having to make uh, acknowledgement that they may have made mistakes. And I think if this is resolved, eventually it will be quietly, it will be discreetly, might be on issue-specific areas, might not all be all, all at once, it might be incremental. I just don't think, you know, the sort of idea for a huge Camp David-style reconciliation meeting was ever going to take root. Now, I think, obviously, we saw then Mohammed bin Zayed refused even to go to the U.S. to, to talk about it. 
And so I mean, from that respect, I'm not surprised that the mediation, at least from the US side, didn't produce results. So at least on the Kuwaiti side, uh, Amir Sabah is uh, obviously steeped in the history, the culture of, of the GCC and of the region. Chance to make a progress, but of course, he's also, I think he turns 91 next week, so he won't, all, you know, he won't be with us forever. But certainly from the US side, I think they had, the wrong, they had it the wrong way around the way they were trying to resolve it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, um, um, one of the things that also um, came apparent during the pullout was the fact that there is obviously no re um, effective arbitration system within the region. Um, so um, when the blockade happened, um, Qatar went to the ICC and there was a ruling about the blockade and so on. Um, in terms of the, the implementation of it, uh, Reem, has there been any implementation allowing um, families who have uh, cross-border relatives to go back to Qatar or vice versa, anything like that? Have any of the, the court's um, uh, recommendations or rulings um, been implemented? Well, after the court's uh, ruling, uh, UAE had no option but to allow, you know, uh, those who want to visit families and uh, uh, allow those who want to go back to the universities um, to go back to school. So uh, it, it took, you know, a long time for, for this to be implemented. But, um, you know, there, and there are some obstacles, but uh, they finally came to uh, implement this uh, court rulings. Okay. Okay, so, um, and, 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 and this is another issue as well. In the future, will, um, will there be, or do you think there is um, potential for some kind of arbitration system within the region, Professor? Do you think something like this will happen, given that it's unsustainable, really, to always pin your hopes on the most elderly sheikh in the region? Well, I mean, ironically, the GCC does have a settlement dispute mechanism within the GCC. But that wasn't used in 2017. And in fact, at every stage of the crisis, the GCC was marginalized. The, the GCC was not used as the vehicle to express whatever grievances they, uh, the three other states in the GCC may have had against Qatar. The GCC wasn't used in terms of a settlement dispute mechanism. And, it, and the GCC then wasn't used in the attempts to mediate. It was the Kuwaiti Emir by himself and supported by the US uh, on occasion. So that's the problem. At every stage, the GCC, which could have played a role, didn't play a role. Mm. So, I mean, uh, I don't know where the GCC goes from there. I think, um, and, and finally, the, there's, there's the pressing issue of the impact of the blockade now. And um, by the blockade, I mean the entire thing, everything that happened in between and all of the actions taken by the blockading states on their own citizens. Um, there has been a huge impact, um, uh, a clampdown on freedom of expression, for example, within Saudi Arabia, within the UAE. Both countries prior to the blockade and, and possibly prior to the Arab Spring even were experiencing some laxing, you know, some freedoms within their local media and so on. All of these have, have basically disappeared. And um, we've had um, activists, uh, civil rights activists, um, politicians, uh, uh, academics, uh, NGO workers, all put in jail for, under various pretexts. Now, ha what will happen to the future of, um, you know, uh, civil life in, in these countries in the 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I mean, does, is, is 
is it right to believe that it looks very, very bleak or not? Um, Professor, uh, or rather, Reem, please go ahead and then we'll have please. Um, so I think, you know, without uh, a genuine leadership, well, this, you know, cannot be heaven. We cannot grant, they cannot grant freedom of speech unless there is a strong uh, will from the leadership itself. As long as people are allowed to express their views without any fear or consequences, whether legal or jail or, you know, like what, what happened to Khashoggi, dismembered and killed, you know, without a guarantee from the uh, top of the leadership uh, and the goal and in the blockading countries specifically, uh, we can never have, you know, any sort of freedom of speech and, um, you know, freedom of expression, um, you know, and uh, the, the GCC. So I think that they need to have a very strong will in order for that to happen. Professor. Well, yeah, I think you're right to say it's getting worse in both Saudi Arabia and the UAE and also in Bahrain too, actually. And I mean, this is a problem in a sense that Obviously, you can rule through coercion, but you, it's not necessarily the most sustainable form of rule. At some point, you're going to need consent. And I think especially as we now may be moving into a much more difficult economic uh, period when there might be economic and even social uh, frustration because of the pandemic, the lockdowns and the, and the impact, you, know, you can either you know, rule by force alone, which of course they've tried to do, but it's not, I don't see how that is a long-term solution. And my concern is, for example, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia has really pitched himself as the only man who can change Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's just kind of whole legitimacy that only he can kind of pull it off. But what happens if he can't? What happens if he fails? And then what happens if he's under pressure and then decides to crack well, down? Well, the greater question as well is uh, what price is development if it comes at the cost of civil rights and civil liberties? Right, exactly. So, I mean, these are all bigger problems for the... Saudis and Emiratis that have to face, I think, especially for the Saudis in the next two, three, five years. And uh, of course, for countries like Qatar or for Kuwait or the Oman, even for the UAE, I mean, they all know that they can't change their geography. I mean, whatever happens in Saudi will have an impact on them. And I mean, I think the whole Abu Dhabi's whole argument is that we have to support Mohammed Salman because only he can change Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, they're also concerned about it. But of course, the problem then is what happens if he fails? And, how do you then limit you know, the implosion or limit the damage that might be done? And I think for, for all countries in the Gulf, you know, this is going to be a concern over the next five, five to 10 years. I have to live with this. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you. Thank you both very much. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for um, giving us um, an hour of your time. I know both of you are extremely busy. I'm sure all of our attendees uh, benefited greatly from your input. I hope... Uh, to host you guys uh, again. Um, we won't take liberties with your time, but um, we'll try and have you once or twice at least in the coming few weeks and months. Um, hopefully things will get better in the region for the benefit of everyone regionally um, and the wider international community. To all of our attendees, thank you very much. I also hope that you will regularly visit newarab.co.uk um, uh, for all of the information that you want in the region. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much, Reem. Thank you.